Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, from the sidelines of the Paris Air Show outside the French capital at the historic airfield in Le Bourget. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first, joining us as he does every Monday is Sam Bendet of the Center for Naval Analyses. He's also a fellow at the Center for a New American Security, and he's part of the Crack Russia team at CNA and one of the world's leading experts on the Russian military and unmanned systems. Sam, welcome back. It's always a pleasure having you on the program, and I hope you had a great holiday weekend. Good to be back, and uh, thanks for having me back on your show, and I hope uh, the air uh, show is going well for you. It's uh, it's going very well. Lots of insights and lots of programming that we're going to have going into uh, the subsequent uh, weeks. Uh, and I hope, Sam, you're tanned, rested and ready uh, for uh, for the week. Um, before we get started, today's program is brought to you by HII. HII is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors to the U.S. government. HII delivering hard stuff done right. Uh, Sam, a lot of international speculation, whether you're in Paris or in Washington or anywhere else, on how the war actually is going. There's a lot that we don't know. We hear about Ukrainian successes that might not yet be public. Uh, we also hear about setbacks that might not yet be public. Uh, wh- where are we now in, in, you know, you monitor virtually every telegram channel. Where are we now in terms of how this war is going uh, and how we think it's going to unfold, uh, given um, the going has been a little bit slower, I think, than many uh, had expected or maybe, uh, you know, unrealistically expected. Well, Ukraine is advancing slowly in certain parts of the front. It is advancing several kilometers here, uh, several kil- several kilometers there. Uh, the fighting is going to be very difficult simply because Russian military had time to dig in. And we mentioned this last week and a week before. Russian military has multiple layers of of defenses and fortifications established. And in this type of frontal assault that is conducted by Ukraine, advantage sometimes is with a defender. And so that is why Ukrainian military sometimes running into very stiff and organized resistance by the Russian military. There's also indications that the Russian military has finally, a year and a half in, learned from some of its mistakes and is becoming more organized at certain parts of the front. So Russian military is using UAVs a lot more for intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. It is uh, trying to um, basically uh, not send its soldiers into um, into frontal assaults against the Ukrainians as well. Uh, for the Ukraine, of course, the, uh, the presence of Western military technology, the tanks and the armored vehicles of all kinds is actually a huge advantage. And Ukrainians have been using them extremely well. But this is a large front and the advance isn't going to be uniform across the entire front, again, because the Russian military had time to defend itself. But again, Ukrainian military slowly uh, advancing in certain parts. You know, you mentioned that the Russians uh, are uh, learning great article in the New York Times talking in a little bit greater detail about some of the specific things the Russians are doing. Uh, the, uh, the fact that the Russians blew uh, the dam, uh, the Nova Kokovka dam, was to keep the Ukrainians from using it as a bridge to cross the Dnipro River. Um, they're using, you know, they're barraging Ukrainian cities uh, with uh, the Shahed, the, the Iranian Shahed-136 drones they have, basically to expend uh, Ukraine's uh, stocks of air and missile defenses, knowing that both Ukraine and the West have very limited inventories, right? I mean, we're we're out of the cheap stuff and now we're into the expensive stuff. 
And on top of all of it, it appears that the Russians have pretty much achieved a pretty wide um, jammed corridor on the border that makes virtually every GPS controlled system uh, inoperative. How are, what are some of the specific things, Sam, the Russians are doing uh, that indicate that they're uh, learning uh, and some of the things that they're doing that are going to be problematic because Russia is playing a long game on this? Right. Uh, one of the, I guess, most visible achievements so far is the uh, growing use of uh, UAVs of all kinds to conduct intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance. Russians were doing that before, but they had gaps in that capability. They didn't have enough UAVs. Uh, they seem to are they seem to be using more UAVs again uh, to conduct intelligence on the Ukrainian forces. Another tactic that is used by both sides, but it's also used by the Russians on the increasing scale is the use of FPV drones to target Ukrainian vehicles, Ukrainian positions, and Ukrainian movements. And the Russians seems, seem to be gaining more and more of this capability by the day, uh, probably because these type of drones are delivered to them by the volunteers in large uh, quantities. What's interesting about this is that some Russian military units, such as the airborne forces, the VDV, are actually more um, uh, adept at using FPV technology, are incorporating FPVs in their concepts and tactics. In fact, there was uh, news on Telegram that uh, Russian airborne forces are going to have their own assembly plans to assemble large numbers of FPVs to basically send them as cheap missiles against advancing Ukrainian forces. Of course, Ukrainians are doing the same to the Russians. They have been doing that for uh, for the past year and very successfully. So both sides are trying to gain an advantage in an environment where one side uh, basically had time to dig in and the other side has to advance now against the rather entrenched opposition. Um, you you mentioned uh, drones, right? I mean, we've got, um, I was told it's like a 50 uh, mile band, uh, deep band, where the Russians uh, are doing some intense jamming, not with anything fancy, but actually some of their 19 very effective, you know, very powerful 1960s and 70s uh, jamming uh, equipment, driving Ukraine more to sort of line of sight drones and things like that. How are the Ukrainian, you know, what are the kind of capabilities the Russians are deploying? And what are the counter capabilities the Ukrainians are using to try to get around the jamming, right? Because everything about war is move, counter move. Right. Uh, the Russians would like to basically portray themselves as uh, as a counter UAS and EW capable. So there's a lot of videos on Telegram and Twitter of Russian forces using counter UAS rifles at the tactical edge. But the reality is, of course, very different. There are not enough of these rifles. There are not enough of these technologies out there. Russians do utilize large um, EW systems that can cover a very wide area. They also have a growing share of, of portable military counter UAS and electronic warfare systems. But again, it's it's not an absolute uh, protection simply because there are gaps in this coverage. And a lot of these gaps are actually exploited by FPV drones because they can fly very fast, low to the ground. A lot of these technologies are rather impervious to these type of countermeasures. And that's why there's a growing number of videos from the Ukrainians where they target Russian ISR stations, where they target EW, and counter UAS stations and other capabilities with these very cheap, very fast flying uh, UAVs. Russians, again, are trying to do the same. And the reason I keep coming back to FPV drones is because this is one capability that is showing up on a massive scale on both sides. 
these are truly game-changing technologies for this conflict at least because they're so cheap to manufacture and they can be so capable. And both sides, and especially the volunteers on both sides of the front, are trying to basically um, modify this technology, uh, retest it, perfect it based on what they are seeing at the front. And this type of feedback creates a more advanced version, for example, of an FPV drone that can carry a larger warhead up to four kilos, for example. It can fly faster. Uh, there are different tactics which are now employed by these type of UAVs to target each other's defenses, including EW systems. And the reason why FPVs are used, again, is that they're so cheap that a drone less than $1,000 can target electronic warfare, counter UAS, or any other station or system worth millions. Uh, and Sam, really quickly, just remind the audience uh, about the deal that uh, Russia has with Iran uh, because they're setting up a factory a couple of uh, hundred uh, kilometers or a couple of hundred miles outside Moscow to build the Shahed 136, which is proving uh, to be a real backbone weapon for the Russians. Right. Um, a couple months ago, Western media uh, broke the story that Russia and Iran have agreed to build or assemble a large number of these Shahed 136 drones in Yelabuga, which is several hundred miles east of Moscow. Apparently, the factory is already breaking ground. Apparently, a Russian contractor was identified that will be probably assembling these drones. And these are very capable systems because each Shahed drone can cost less than $50,000, but it can fly up to several hundred kilometers and can strike stationary targets inside Ukraine. So basically, Shahed-136 is a surrogate for a cheap missile and are used in very large quantities. The reason why they're effective is also because they're forcing Ukrainian defenders to expand their ammunition, to try to use missiles and all manner of systems to shoot them down. Ukrainians are very successful in doing so. They shoot down most of these Shaheds, but at the same time, they have to spend a lot of resources in doing so. And so this Shahed-136 and its companion 131, which are flying under the Russian name of Gerain-2 and Gerain-1 respectively, are actually filling a very key gap in uh, Russian capabilities between short-range or mid-range ISR drones and the actual more expensive missiles. Uh, and there's every evidence that Russia intends to capitalize on Shahed-136 to use them more often and in larger quantities, hence the factory outside of Moscow, which supposedly will assemble 6,000 of these drones. Uh, I want to take you to one last question, which is about uh, the St. Petersburg Economic Forum, obviously uh, Vladimir Putin's hometown. Uh, very proud of it. It used to be a, a mandatory stop uh, on uh, the world economic calendar, whether you were on the investment side, the banking side, and, and even some senior financial uh, officials from Western countries made it a regular part of the circuit. Uh, what are some of the war-related messages uh, and even the technologies, right? Because there's a conference and there's also sort of a national exhibition that goes with it. What are some of the messages we heard from the Russian president as well as saw from Russian industry? Well, the messaging is that, uh, once again, uh, Russian president is trying to put on a brave face and to tell his uh, country and the world at large that Russia is surviving. Russia is actually thriving, uh, that there are enough, uh, there's enough domestic potential as well as there's enough international cooperation for Russia to overcome the sanctions and emerge uh, stronger than ever from this conflict. Um, the messaging is also that Russia is going to press on with the war against Ukraine and will overcome Ukraine. Uh, so it's not that different from earlier messaging and earlier 
statements by the president. What's interesting about this specific forum is that a lot of Russian companies are showcasing their capabilities. And of course, with the Ministry of Defense and the president, uh, so, you know, honing in on um, UAVs and other military technologies that can gain advantage on the battlefield, a lot of Russian companies actually exhibited their domestic UAVs. But then, of course, a scandal broke, which is probably not unique at this point. A, uh, a company presented a small quadcopter, which they called Patriot. They claimed that it was impervious to electronic warfare. And the Russian military commentators and a lot of Russian military bloggers and the media uh, in general quickly recognized that this was actually an, a Chinese Autel drone with just the Russian label. And so this, this actually played out on Telegram. This played out on social media. The company was confronted. They had to admit that this was, okay, a Chinese drone, but it had Russian software for operations. And so this kind of demonstrates the difficulty of a lot of Russian manufacturers trying to fill the niche and the gap that is so uh, that is that has been exposed by this war and that is the lack of short-range quadcopter like UAVs for the military as well as a huge demand in the civilian economy for these type of UAVs the Chinese companies dominate this market as evidenced by this specific scandal and uh, a related news is that several smaller Chinese UAV manufacturers like Femi are actually interested in localizing their drone production in Russia. And that can have very significant implications for the Russian domestic UAV market because a lot of Russian companies are just trying to kind of spread their wings, no pun intended, and claim that they're actually manufacturing all components domestically. The presence of Chinese companies, even if it's joint production, can have the effect of choking off the domestic Russian UAV efforts. Uh, this may be inevitable anyway, but uh, the Chinese companies are actually interested in expanding into a still small Russian market, but the market that they think shows potential. Of course, a lot of these UAVs can end up at the front as well. Sam, uh, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks, Vago. And a word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And joining us now, as he does every week, is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, thanks so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Vago. Uh, I have to say that I wish you were here in uh, sunny uh, Paris, uh, where uh, in the middle of this recording, we had to take a little bit of a pause because the F-35 was doing its demonstration and wowing the crowd here uh, with its uh, incredible uh, aerobatic uh, capabilities. Uh, Byron, start us off with your uh, Sunday note. Very thoughtful. Uh, you know, you want to uh, you built a little bit on the appropriations drama that we that Michael Herson uh, discussed on uh, the Washington Roundtable last week. Give us your sense on consensus as well as inflation, which you focused on in your note? Look, I think it's now, you know, we've quickly gone from, well, we talked about it a bit last week, right? The out of the frying pan and into the fire uh, for the U.S. defense budget that, yeah, we avoided a, a, a crisis over the debt ceiling, but we now look like we're going to be in a very tough slog through the end of the year on FY24 appropriations and how that all was going to play out. And I just think it's, you know, it's a bit of a segue to uh, some of the presentations that at least have been webcast from the Paris Air Show, both Raytheon or now RTX 
and GE um, webcast events. And, you know, they they seem pretty sanguine about the budget outlook. I think, you know, ultimately you'll get the base um, budget done for FY24. And I think ultimately you will get a, a supplemental for Ukraine, but it's going to be pretty hairy this fall, uh, really this summer and through the fall, as we look at really a lot of debate over the non-defense discretionary part of, of spending. But I think also if you look at the the House um, Armed Services, but probably equally importantly, and maybe more importantly, the House Appropriations Defense Subcommittee marks, you know, these, these um, culture wars, social issues, whatever, they're going to be sticking points in how this, this defense budget comes together. And, you know, people have sharper pointier sticks this year than, than I recall in a lot of these budget cycles. So, you know, I think we'll ultimately get there. There's still a path where, you know, worst case for defense is no Ukraine supplemental, um, no uh, FY24 budget. So you're funding uh, FY24 at 99% of the FY23 level, which maybe is what some of the hard right people in the House want in any event. So, um, you know, it, it's hard to call it right now. You know, it's really kind of a gut and a belief rather than something I can point to. But I think everybody can point to the, the rough road that defense is going to be traveling over in the next couple of months. Um, and uh, you know you're uh, very you're you're not a betting man. Anybody who knows you knows you're not. But uh, you're uh, an odds maker. What are the odds on? I mean, do you do you have enough data? Do you think to be able to sort of tell us what the odds are and how this sort of ends yeah. up, or is it just uh, you know I, as a base case I mentioned? I think that's you know seventy five percent odds. I wouldn't be surprised. I'm really not bothered, and I don't think people should be bothered by federal shutdowns if they last a couple of days. Um, you know, that's unfortunate. And I think it sends a very bad message to people in the federal workforce. Um, uh, the CR scenarios are the ones I worry about more. I, I don't know. I just think you're going to have a lot of problem going into a 2024 election cycle if Congress can't get any budgets passed. Um, and, and you know, you know this, I think a lot of your listeners know this, Bago, that operating under a CR, if you don't get anomalies, you know, you can't do new program starts, you can't increase um, uh, production rates, you know, they're, they're a whole bunch of handcuffs that get put on on very important and critical defense programs. And it's, it would be absolutely the wrong message to send, certainly to Russia, even though it looked like Secretary of State Blinken had a decent Meeting in China, um, you know, I would not say that, uh, you know, we're, we're in the fields of clover in our relationship with China. And uh, just really quick, tell the audience what the base case is for those people who may not have read your note oh, or just, know just that. what the, that the base, the, yeah. base case is. The base case to me would be, you know, you'll probably get, uh, well, you'll get the, the administration's request. Congress is going, always going to make its its little tweaks. Um you know, is there an idea that there's going to be another supplemental above and beyond that request or, you know, Congress is going to tack on more money? I think what they're going to get is probably the, the minimum that Ukraine might need uh, for fiscal 2024. And, and, you know, that will have some benefit to contractors, uh, weapons, munitions, maybe some armored vehicles, communications, other support equipment. But that, that to me would be the base case. But the idea that Congress is going to add another you know, 15 or $30 billion for ships, aircraft, um, armored vehicles, uh, you know, JADC2, all the things that 
that um, do you know that were on the unfunded priority list that DoD wanted? I, I don't see that happening this year. I, I want to go to uh, Paris Air Show. Uh, you mentioned, for example, uh, the rebranding of RTX. Uh, as uh, a uh, the overarching company, right? No longer Raytheon Technologies. It will have Raytheon within it, which will be the company's uh, defense businesses. Uh, and then you will have Collins, which is on the uh, avionics side of things. And obviously Pratt & Whitney, uh, tremendous brands kind of across the board. So RTX is sort of the big company. Uh, and uh, for, for those, so you've got to wrap your mind around that. Uh, what were some of the other interesting messages more broadly uh, that you've uh, picked up? Uh, and, you know, even though you're sitting 3,800 miles away, you're watching this air show probably as closely, and if not more closely than some people who are actually living it here. Yeah, and my, my alarm does go off at a god-awful hour that my wife is not happy about, but may, maybe she'd like me in Paris this week anyway. Um, the, the, the points I think that were interesting, Vago, you know, these were, I don't think there was anything really new or stunning that was revealed at either event. Um, they were more kind of framing discussions. I, I do think it was interesting. It did get teased out a tiny bit in the Q&A session at the Raytheon um, discussion that RTX held. And that is, if you look at the growth goal that they reiterated for Raytheon by 2025, they're going to have to have two years of, you know, 10% or better sales growth um, if they have a flattish or slightly up 2023. And, you know, that's well above consensus expectations for defense peers. They might be able to do it. Um, you know, they seem confident in, in their ability to do it, but management said, you know, it's really going to come down to execution. And, you know, if you do the overlay on DOD investment outlays, um, I, I suppose it's possible, but I, I think there there was I detected a bit of skepticism and pushback on, you know, how how easy a, a slam dunk that will be. GE um, also was kind of a framing event, you know, the usual discussions about about lean productivity, technology investments, all the things that they're doing. Um, there really wasn't much financial guidance, but you know, it's it's really not going to be a standalone company until the end of this year next. Um, you know, they called out the, the, some of the money that Congress has, has added, um, has the House Armed Services uh, Committee had restored some funding for the, uh, adoptive technology engine that they're working on. But, you know, as you know, Secretary Kendall of the Air Force said, <laughs> you, you don't have the money to do this, um, to, to, you know, dual source the F-35. So, some growth, you know, I still think there are going to be some issues uh, to tease out for that company in the second half of the decade that need to be flushed through. Before we go uh, to take a look at the weekend, I wanted to get your take uh, on uh, what was the big story here. Uh, there's a new uh, drone called the Arok uh, by uh, Togis and uh, Gaillard. Uh, it's a small company of about 300 people, uh, and they've made this drone that they hope is going to be competitive with uh, the Reaper. Obviously, the Reaper has been in inventory for 20 years and is a global standard with I mean, like, you know, 150 mission packages or more. I mean, right, I believe it's almost 200 mission packages that have been delivered, uh, developed for uh, the the aircraft. But what does this tell us about sort of how the market uh, is developing and whether or not you think it becomes sort of a legitimate competitor to something which is sort of, you know, synonymous with, uh, you know, medium altitude, long endurance aircraft with a proven track record? No, I, I, and I'm not 
trying to take yeah. anything away from the innovative French company that's done oh, this. No, I, I just thought the fascinating. There, there were two thoughts when I when I read some of this uh, coverage of, of this drone and, and this company. First, you know, it's just interesting that there are small or medium-sized companies that are formed to address national security needs. Now, uh, Turgis and Gaillard was, was formed, I think, in 2011. So it, it's a reminder of how long it can take a company to scale to a point where they can actually start, you know, showing up at a place like Paris Air Show. But, you know, you, you typically don't see, I don't see a lot of these smaller innovative companies in the European security landscape. And so maybe, you know, this is going to be another sea change that people are going to have to weigh, like we've seen in the United States, if if venture funding is around or, or other sources of capital to back good ideas that address national security needs and their windows, uh, you know, where where companies can actually sell products to defense ministries in the continent or outside of Europe, um, that might be, that, that, that to me is a signal of a healthy defense industrial base, that there are startups. It means more competition, obviously, but um, but I thought that was the most important takeaway. And, and I would agree, you know, it's probably not, you know, General Atomics really has dominance in that market. Are they going to get knocked off their perch anytime soon? I doubt it. I strongly doubt it. Um, but, you know, as we've seen in, in the Russia-Ukraine war, and I think as Sam just talked about, you know, this is a new element of warfare. And I think we're going to see a lot more, uh, a lot more innovation, a lot more product, um, both offensive and defensive to deal with these. And really quick, uh, what does the audience need to be paying attention to over the course of the coming week? I, well, it's a big week in Congress because we're going to see the rest of some of the House appropriations marks come out. We'll see the full uh, House Armed Services uh, Committee markup of the National Defense Authorization Act. And then the, the, the allocations that Senate appropriations will use, the so-called 302B allocations will come out and we'll have the, SAS, uh, the Senate Armed Services Committee um, complete its markup of the National Defense Authorization Act. So there's a lot going on this week in Washington, uh, much as, uh, you know, there, there's jet noise in, in Le Bourget this week. Uh, it's still a very big week for US, the U.S. DOD budget. Uh, indeed. And looking forward to discussing all of it uh, on the Washington Roundtable and with you next Monday. Byron, thanks so very much. Really appreciate it. Uh, and uh, hope you have a great week and look forward to talking to you again next week. Thanks so much for joining us. Very good, Vago. Thank you. Bon voyage.